Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the seventh episode of The Axe Effect, a podcast about miscellaneous things that we care about, a mosaic of our interests, if you will, where me, Tim, and me, Alex, are here today to talk about a topic that I've been looking forward to talk about ever since we started that podcast, I think. Uh, I've, I've been really looking forward to this one, and it's only th fitting that it's the seventh episode because, I don't know, I like the number seven. Same, actually. Before we get into it, quick top three best numbers under 100. Oh, okay, definitely seven, number one. Number two is um, five. And, five, okay. And my top three... Um, I think it's an eight because you can turn it around and it's still an eight, and it can also be an infinity symbol that you can tattoo above your ass crack. That's a solid reasoning, I think. I think if you ask a lot, of, uh, if you ask people in general, a lot of them will say seven. There's something about the number seven. It really is, isn't it? It's it's. I think it's the lowest number that is that feels kind of unique. You know, one yeah. is it's one two. Two is too even, I think. It's just so basic. It is so three? odd. It is so odd that we're talking about numbers now. Like, give me your top three, and then I have to say something about the number seven, actually. <laughs> uh, three is. Um, are there something to be said about three? I, th I think uh, <clears throat> three would be my number two after number seven. Then four is just two times two. I'm not really on board with the five and and ten. You know, everything that ends in five and ten is too too round. Six is how are you? How are you such a low number and already a product of two numbers lower than you? That's I don't know. That's that's kind of weak. And then there's seven. So it's the the first number that is truly unique. I think. Yeah. So seven is I would be number one for me. Nice. I remember. I remember having to learn. Having to learn. Um, I don't know how you, how you how do you call those in English? Einmal eins. What are those in English? Like basically, um, where you just count up like seven, fourteen, twenty-one, like up until seventy. So like the to, yeah to, to kind of multiplying numbers on uh, one to ten. Yeah, with each other. That's essentially that. Um, yeah. And I recall that the first one that I knew by heart was the seven row. Um, yeah. Because my grandparents made me. Um, Made me do that over and over and over and over and over again, and for some reason that has just is just like burnt in the back of my skull. Not a, like in the literal sense. There's not a seven burnt into my skull, but <laughs> that would be kind of dope. I think very, very German parenting, actually. <laughs> we only have one child, but it gets the number seven. <laughs> well, do you do you think it's like uh, with racing cars where you just have your starting number? Just like, huh. or is it like a uh, like a in a jersey in soccer or anything? It's like your. I think your isn't number. there isn't there some kind of um, some kind of implication depending on the number on your soccer jersey? I know that number ten is usually kind of like the star. I think yeah. Number I one is the not, captain. It's not um, necessary, but I think it's just a tradition. Okay, right? like the the defense, like the goalkeeper has the one. Defense has like like the four or five defenders have like two through six or something, mm -hmm. and then your attacking players they have like uh, yeah, nine, ten, and eleven. Oftentimes, yeah, okay. that's, that's definitely true. So I I think getting the number ten 
if you get the number ten on your team, that's that's it's a kind sign of a statement, of right? And it's a statement. Yeah, it 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 it, it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, off to a great start here. But <laughs> let's get into the topic um, of today's show. Um, oh, it's a, it's not, it's a, not a podcast anymore. It's a show now. Mm. I just wanted to let you know we, we we've graduated. I'm on board into, with that. I'm into on board with have, that. having a show. We we show in the, in the showbiz now, baby, baby. Um, <laughs> no, um, we wanted to talk about Hollow Knight. Which is a video game um, that we both enjoyed very, very much. I have to say, I think I'm gonna, uh, you know, take away the conclusion here and say that it is probably one of the best games that I have played in the last couple of years. I, I really believe that, um, and I think that you would say similar things about it, right? Yeah, I would I would exaggerate that even further. I would say it's one of the best games I've ever played, not just in the last years. I think it's just one of the best games that I've ever gotten my hands on. Yeah, that's I think that that's true for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um and to you know get a little give a little more um detailed description of what it is maybe it is a um it is a 2D platformer that really relies on on the hand drawn um you know surroundings and and levels and animations characters it was released in 2017 after being uh you know doing a kickstarter for funding in 2016 hmm. and what i didn't i knew about that what i didn't know is that it the original Concept for the character, at least, and some parts of the stories where a story were developed um, during a um, a game jam. Yeah, you know where uh, de- developers get together and and create a game from scratch during like I don't know twenty four to seventy two hours. I think that's generally it's like a hackathon, rain. but for games essentially. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that is where, where this started in 2013, I believe. Um, and I saw uh, the game that they made, and it's astonishing how similar the character looks. I mean, they they pretty much have the the character as he is in the game later on in that um, in that original demo, I want to call it, mm. um, which was called Hungry Night. Um, the gameplay <laughs> nom, nom, nom. in itself is a, is a lot different. It's, it's more 3D-ish and has nothing to do with how the game is later. But I was astonished that they just liked the characters so much, apparently, that they were like straight up, um, you know, uh, used him in, in, the, in the later game. Then, you know, they made the, uh, the Kickstarter. And do you want to guess what the original goal was that they uh, set for the, for the game on Kickstarter? Mm, I'm gonna say somewhere between like forty and sixty k. Thirty five thousand. Oh, that was close then. Do you want to know um, how much they made? They made like two million or something. I bet. Close. Little lower. Little lower. One point eight. One point nine. Little lower. One point five. Little lower. One point two. No, I'm gonna tell you. Okay, tell me. Fifty-seven thousand. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is insane to me. 
I think this I just mixed that up with the second part that just got announced because the um, the funding for that blew through the roof like overnight. The, um, you know, if you look at what became of the game now, yeah. um, seven years later, a budget of $57,000 is insane to me. That's not a lot of money. That no, is it really not isn't. a lot of money. <laughs> in the you, context, um, in it, the context of developing it, a video game, in in the context of what has to have gone into making that game, you know. Um, so yeah, um, so it is what we're getting at. Is it is a an indie game, and it is kind of a uh, you know we are not that deep into the indie world that we uncover hidden gems in there. This game is very, very, you know, it's um, very popular. It's 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 uh, it's it's a household name. This game beca- became a huge smash hit in the indie world and beyond. I would say, yeah, in, in the recent years, um, and rightfully so, as we said, it's a, it's a great game. Let's begin maybe with um, what makes this game so captivating, um, which I. Believe which we both talked about is the um, atmosphere, the music, you know, the the overall art style of the game. I think that is what carries a lot of the, um, yeah, the, the the charm of the game. I would say. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I'd 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 start by um, by pointing out that this type of game is usually. Um, not not my specific cup of tea, and I remember talking to you about um, the fact that the overall art style and all like the the visual and um, well, basically all the audio visual choices and elements of that game kind of turned me around on the whole thing. Um, what by, I mean, by this type of game, what exactly do you mean? Um, I mean, I mean, well, there's there's. A lot of things I could say here. I'm not a massive fan of um, indie games usually, um, just because of the types of genre that they choose. A lot of those platforming games that you mentioned, um, or type type of games that are that could be classified as Metroidvanias. Um, I think that we'll get into la- in later in a bit. Um, but um, these types of games are usually not for me. I'm more interested in narrative-driven games that are less about mechanics. And I think. Um, what kind of drew me in, in into Hollow Knight was the fact that it had such a rich and dense atmosphere that was really carried by the art style and um, especially the soundtrack as well and how all of these um, how basically how all these elements kind of you know were in synergy with each other. Um, so I recall a conversation that we had a few days ago when we were talking about the game off script and I think I said something like. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but basically because of how well all these elements linked into each other and how they sparked my imagination, this worked for me um, when it usually didn't. What I mean by that is, um, the the game has a has a relatively um, I don't want to say I don't want to say sad tone. I think melan- melancholic or melancholy um, would be would be a better term to describe yeah, it. So there's sure. a certain certain downtroddenness of the world, but it, there's a lot of beauty in it. So it's um, it's, it's a very elegant way of um, making you feel that you're kind of in a in a fragile world. 
and um, that is really under underlined by by a very very beautiful orchestral soundtrack that kind of differs um, in very um, very gradient nuances from area to area when you traverse. Oh yeah, it's um, very subtle changes between the the levels. It's um, definitely the I, the soundtrack is 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 gorgeous. I think it's just. Um, It's it's really you. Could, I think you could just li listen to the. Um, I'm not one to listen to soundtracks of um, of video game like the OST thing. Not really my cup of tea, but I can definitely imagine putting putting that on and just listening, getting lost in it. It's it's really really beautiful. And as you said, it just everything, every piece of art in this game is just lovely. It's gorgeous. I think it's um, the the hand drawn detailed. Uh, you know, um, background pictures, the backdrops, I, yeah. I, the backdrops right? Um, they're just, they're just, they're just a pleasure to look at. That's it's as simple as it is. Um, the characters, they're pretty simple for the most part of it, but but just all, again, really, I'd say cute. A lot of them are kind of cute and uh, just or just look, just really. In simple terms, very powerful uh, character um, design, character design. Yeah, um, yeah the, the levels, the themes of the different levels are just work so well. You, whenever you get into a new um, kind of area, um, it's always something new. Um, it all fits the overall game, but it's all unique in, in, um, in a way. Um, and I think that is where probably um, we can get into another thing here is that what really makes this game so strong to me is is the sense of wonder that it, that this game captures so perfectly. Um, as I said, w whenever you get into a new area, you unlock a new region, so to speak. Um, it's really... I really was looking forward to that every single time. Whenever I realized, oh, I just unlocked something new, I'm on my way to somewhere where I haven't been yet. It was like a little child being excited for what there might be, right? Because you knew that up to that point, every single time you you unlocked something that like that, it was exciting. It was something beautiful to look at uh, and a new and worthwhile experience. And that kept... Through, uh, that was kept up throughout the entire game, I would say. I agree. I agree. The sense of wonder, um, I I think, um, is one of the key parts and why I enjoyed this game so much. Um, because of how lively and alive each area felt and how this transition into new areas and the exploration was really kind of supported by... Um, by the atmosphere, by subtle changes in, in you know, uh, sound effects around you or like new music um, playing in the background, even if it's just in nuances. So um, yeah, the exploration is one of the um, one of the key elements of that game, and this sense of wonder that that you know creates in you. Uh, yeah, I think exploration is probably the right uh, key word to um, make a transition to. Um, oh, another thing that you mentioned earlier in passing, which is the concept of a Metroidvania game. Yeah, as you said, you already said it, it's not really your cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I have to say that I have played my fair share of Metroidvania, uh, Metroidvanias, is 
especially I had a phase like a couple of years ago where I played a lot of them. Um, and just to explain what it is, um, the term Metroidvania, it is a somewhat common term in you know game design and, and marketing um, that is made up of two segments, the Metroid part, the Vania part, and the Metroid part refers to the Metroid game series um, and the Vania part refers to the Castlevania game series, which share um, a lot of uh, gameplay um, elements. Um, they essentially established a convention of gameplay. So like they established a type of game. Um, and those are uh, mainly just that um, it is you play in a somewhat open world, a larger interconnected world that you are dropped in most of the time without much context, without much clues what to do, which, without any comment, mo comment most of the time. Um, and then you have to find your way through there. And you will very soon get to places that you can't get past, like doors, barriers. Um, Even just know, a steep an, wall. A wall, exactly. It can be whatever. Uh, that is a theme that is uh, goes on throughout the um, the game, where you keep running into barriers that you can't oftentimes get past at the point of the game that you're in. And your task is to find a way to get past it by uh, acquiring certain abilities in other places of the world, uh, by finding certain items, by talking to certain characters that you find in in other places of the um of the map of the world and that is really as we mentioned earlier that is just so reliant of, on the concept of exploration you know just exploring the world and making a mental map or looking at the in-game map oftentimes like oh I've been here I couldn't get, get past this point because of so and so and then you just keep going and on, on a, uh, at a later point you find something and then the light goes up in your uh, off in your head like oh yeah i can use this to get past that one door that i couldn't get past like 2 hours ago and that is the gameplay mechanic that that is that, that is the most uh, important for a metroidvania i would add on that with uh, with one thought um, I think it's worth saying that Metroidvania type games um, often have a reputation of being notoriously hard. So um, there's 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 also an element of of difficulty involved into overcoming those challenges because sometimes getting access to a new level requires um, requires fighting. Uh, a lot of the times it requires fighting. Fighting is a key element of those games as well. Um, I think that's also worth mentioning in the context of Hollow Knight. I think we're going to get into that in a bit, though. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the the whole um, fighting and the mechanics of movement and everything. We are going to get that maybe mm -hmm. uh, in context uh, context of the game that you uh, are going to talk about. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's. Uh, I think. Um, well, um, one thing that makes it difficult from just the exploration point of view is that it requires a certain level of commitment. Yeah. Um, and just commitment time-wise, because those games tend to be a little longer maybe, but also commitment in the sense of, um, I would say just 
reserving the the, the uh, a certain amount of space in your brain to to just work through the the whole information that you have to um take in yeah. to you know to process oh i this is where i i want i need to go back there at some point um those doors i couldn't get past because of so and so and just i think that is it i would imagine that it it it's probably really hard to play a metroidvania just uh an hour every two weeks you will I think you would just get lost. You yeah. wouldn't be able to. You would forget too much. Um, and I think that is certainly a um, a factor that can make it um, a little more challenging. But you know, in in the light of all the information that we have uh, available online, that is also kind of you know can overcome that by by different means, maybe. And I think a lot of people uh, will you know take. Uh, Use some kind of guide or something to, or would in 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 cases like that. Um, and I I I did that also uh, as well one or two times uh, during my playthrough, uh, where I just could not for the life of me. I just kept running into the uh, three or four same yeah. one way roads, and I just uh, after one or two hours of just running around aimlessly. Or not one or two hours, maybe two or three hours of running around aimlessly and running into the same one-way roads, um, time and time again. It's it's just natural to to take a look at at, at some kind of guide and then it's the of whole course thing you get opens. frustrated. No, I did, but that's I think that is one um, challenge that those games offer that is you know apart from from the just uh, the fighting that is that is in there as well. Um, and I think at this point, this is probably the point to make a reference to our second episode now, um, where we talked about open world games and um, where we try to coin the term of open world anxiety <laughs> to a ravaging success, as you all read thousands of uh, artic- articles on that new scientific a phenomenon ever since then, I think. Um, no, but <laughs> what we what we were getting at uh, back then was that open world games, and you know, truly open world games, where you can go wherever, whenever you want, can be really, really overwhelming, and at times be anxiety inducing. Um, and I think I think we were both um, we both agreed on that. Yeah. Um, and both said that we struggled with that at times. And for me, as I said, I really enjoyed uh, a, quite a couple of games of that Metroidvania um, genre. For me, they are um, a type of open world game in a sense, but they navigate that. You know that minefield of of overwhelming you really nicely. I think that those uh, gameplay mechanic ga- gameplay mechanics make it so much easier for me to to uh, commit to the games hmm. and um, just not sh- struggle with that that sense of getting lost and getting um, just being overwhelmed by choices yeah. and not knowing what to do because they. Just by having those um, those clear problems laid out to you, like you can't get in there, you need something 
and it's it's there's most of the time there's some hint as to what you need to get it to get there. There's um, it lays out a a path for you to traverse the the world and give you some hint as to the um, priorities maybe. Yeah, and it it obviously limits the possibilities from the get-go. And I think that really, really, really uh, helps me at least with um, with getting over that open-world anxiety, I would say. Yeah, I mean, what it provides you with, it, it provides you with, uh, with a very clear understanding of where you, where you can go and where you can't go and where you should be and um, what you're looking for. Sometimes you can conclude by the type of obstacle that you're standing in front of. Like I said, it could just be a wall. Sometimes um, if, we're, if we're talking about Castlevania, for example, um, that's something that is usually in a, in a, in a medieval type setting. Um, so maybe it could, be, it could be some kind of, um, kind of nook or hook on the, on the ceiling for a grapple hook or a, or a whip or something that you can use to pull yourself up. Um, so... In the sense of this 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 open world anxiety, I found myself when I played Hollow Knight, um, not encountering this this sensation where I was like, um, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of um, amount of choices I can make here because the game very like you said, very directly makes you understand. Okay, you can't go here now. Um, you need something to to pass here, and then when you can pass, you should pass. Um, and that is that is that is kind of a different sensation, I suppose, than when the entire map is laid bare to you, and you're just like, okay, yeah. where where do I start? Um, that is that is not to say that there's not a not an element of um, oh, a different type of uh, type of anxiety maybe involved. I think because, like you said, exploration is a is a big part of the game, and the. Um, the kind of the difficulties of going going to new places and not really knowing what to expect, especially in oh, a yeah. world that is that is fairly hostile, um, kind of kind of had a different, um, not necessarily unpleasant, but just a different type of uh, type of anxiety or stress involved. I think. Um, yeah, tr- sure. It's. Uh... As I as I said earlier, um, there is still the element of just getting lost and especially yeah. um in later stages of the game where you unlocked you know larger parts of the uh um the area the map um obviously the the the, the amount of world that you have to um you know explore and and just look at and and search through in order to find maybe what you're looking for, it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and uh, you can get lost quite easily, uh, in, in especially in later later um, stages of, of these games. Yeah, um, that's that's certainly true. And another thing that those games do very well, oftentimes, or what the the design enables them to do. Um, is just creating those little moments of reward over and over again. Mm. It's like that um, those little moments of feeling like you had an epiphany, right? Oh, you find an, yes. So you have that. You find an, an object, and and you're like, oh yeah, I know where the, where I need uh, to use this. The and aha moment, it, yeah. 
uh, then you use it and then it works exactly as you intended to use it and then you get to a new level. That is so rewarding to me. And it just is that enables those games to keep rewarding you with little bits of story, with new abilities, with new characters to meet and with new levels to to explore. Just yeah. you know, that's it's a constant it's a constant state of being rewarded, I think. And that is just very, very exciting as a player. I think that is as simple as it is. I think you're constantly chasing that. I think that's, it's yeah, kind of, it's kind absolutely. of this analogy of, of, you know, the donkey and the carrot. That's the thing that the game like dangles in front of you. Like behind absolutely. every corner, there could be something interesting. Behind every corner, there could be like a hidden wall or like a secret, secret for you to find. And, and chasing that is really, really thrilling and kind of addicting actually. Exactly. And that's a very good point because in those moments where the game does not actually reward you or it still keeps up that possibility yeah. of there might be something, right? And that is constant. And that is, I think, I really, really enjoy that. That and is I just a, it's just very rewarding on a very fundamental level. I think you just made me realize something. Um, I think better than any other game, I've seen Hollow Knight pace those rewards. Um, so what I mean by that, that type of chase that we were just talking about, um, in a lot of games, it feels like either like a game supplies it at really like weird, um, weird instances of the game, or like weird, um, weird pacing intervals. Yeah. Intervals, yeah. Thank you. Uh, intervals is way better. Um, so the intervals in this case are really matched. So there's a really, really good balance that once you're kind of like. I feel like sometimes you're a bit like a detective when you're exploring the world in Hollow Knight. So you're like, oh, there could be a wall behind, or there could be a secret wall here that I can break, or there could be a hidden cavern somewhere up there. And you're kind yep. of like wandering around. And I feel the game is really, really good at rewarding your kind of your instincts when it comes to when it comes to exploring this world. They really kind of establish. Um, I don't want to say a pattern, but you develop a feeling for where there might be something yeah. hiding. And I feel like. 80 to 90% of the time when I felt there might be something more to look for, I found something. Um, and I feel like but it, they did an incredible job at pacing those rewards. But it's not every time. Exactly. Because if it's every time, it's also kind of boring. It, it, you, you finding nothing often enough that when you find something, it's still... Exciting, and it feels like um, your own your own discovery at the same time. It feels like you were like it, the game makes you feel like you were right to look for it, right? Exactly. Like, like like you you had developed the right understanding of it, and like your your sense of discovery became more became more sharp in the process of playing. That that that's essentially what I meant. Like they don't constantly reward you, but they reward you often enough. And when they do it, they do it in the way um, such as. Uh, such that makes you feel um, like you really understood what they were going for, or like what you were you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, essentially. And I think uh, when we talk about rewards, and I think that is something that you hinted at earlier, is that how this all of those elements that are great on their own also are work together even better. Is that um, you're not just rewarded with a in a golden star or a pat on the back or some nice little jingle and that says you made it, you are rewarded with another piece of art that is just, you know, great to look at, great yeah. to listen to. 
And I think that is what there, there's an, I'd say, intrinsical motivation to keep exploring because it's not the act of succeeding in and of itself, which may be the case in, in other games. In mm. this, it's an, it's like, it's not only that I did it, the reward is actually worthwhile. Yeah, it's the activity we, and the reward itself. I mean, uh, you know, basic game design design is just succeeding in and of itself is rewarding and exciting. There's like games that just where, you know, uh, meeting your goal, reaching the win state is the reward. And that is not bad in, in that is not bad, I would say. That's works as well. But in this game, it's like double the, the reward, I would say. Because the 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 in-game reward is also amazing, as we said, like the new music that you might get to hear, new characters that you might get to see, new levels that you might get access to. That's just that's where this game really, really, really excels to for for me, and where the all where different elements really, you know, um, connect. Yeah, from a from a game design perspective, as you hinted, I think the the developers have just done a wonderful job at keeping players engaged with the way that they oh, yeah. designed the world. Um, by the way, in case um, in case that's of any interest, I, I'd be very happy to at some point delve into that a bit further. Despite what people might think, both you and I have university education. Um, um, you happen to major in uh, in a psych, psych, psychology um, major as well. Um, and I ended up writing a bachelor's thesis with a psychological um, point of view, or not point of view, um, subject, uh, yep. regarding reward systems in video games. So um, what we're talking about here is something I, <laughs> I also spend, uh, spend tremendous time researching into. Yeah, so if that's so, of any interest, we no, can... No, have, have at it. If, uh, just go, go in there. It's, it's really interesting. Tear it up. <laughs> So in my thesis, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, the interesting thing about about reward systems, or the thing that I had to had to understand first, is that there's never just one, um, and there's 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 a lot of elements that are kind of interlinked with each other, and that. When when the balance is off between between those rewards, whether it's with the pacing, um, like oversupplying the player with like constant feedback, or making it too hard to achieve, like there's this there's this balance scale. It's essentially a graph, um, just 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 basically a linear function. And the way that I decided to measure these things um, was using the psychological framework by um, by a Czech psych, um, psychology researcher. I think he's Czech. I, I might be I might be wrong. It's been a while since I read my paper, um, but um, basically the key framework that I used is, um, is is something called flow, and I think Hollow Knight would be a perfect example for that. So flow is this idea that you um, follow follow a certain you do a certain activity, and because of the the mind uh, the occupation that it puts your mind in and the experience that you have while doing it, it becomes worthwhile just while you do it. Like there's no extrinsic reward for it. Um, so, for example, people like rock climbers who who describe this feeling of like having almost like an like an like an out of body experience because they're so yeah. engaged in what they're doing. They're, it, it requires their total focus, and their brain is just not 
anywhere else other than engaged in the moment or or surgeons or chess players like all people operating at a very high level in terms of their brain capacity they all describe a similar phenomenon and um, that's when they hit the sweet it's spot it's basically tunnel vision at yeah, that point yeah essentially but it's like it's it's like tunnel vision but with endorphins and um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, good, and, the, yeah. and the way that they that, that, that he classified it is is that it's the sweet spot between boredom and anxiety so um, if a game becomes too hard um, you 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 develop this 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 anxiety because the challenge that you're faced with is um, you know unsurmountable. You you cannot get past yeah. that, and you develop anxiety or stress, and it just isn't not it it just isn't a pleasure. The other end of the spectrum would be would be boredom when it becomes super easy. Like in the context of Hollow Knight, for example, if the fights were really easy, if the rewards came in at a pace that would just not make them make them rewarding anymore because you just you just have a constant oversupply of it you don't have to you don't have to do anything for it and i think hollow knight better than a lot of other games it's actually like it's kind of mind blowing to me i didn't i hadn't played hollow knight when i wrote my paper but that would have been you know a perfect example for that type of hypothesis mm-hmm. um, hollow knight manages to hit that sweet spot where it constantly challenges your 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 you know your conscious mind where you're like oh where am i where do i have to go like i have to constantly like take care of my movement like you said it's a platformer so you have to make sure you don't fall down somewhere you have you develop new moves so you can climb up steeper walls and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it manages to hit that sweet spot where you're constantly occupied and you really do have to focus on what you're doing but it's so incredibly gratifying because you get it right Right? Um, and it rewards you for that, and that's the same thing with the exploration. So um, it's really interesting that you that you brought up rewards because the exploration, I would argue, the exploration itself is a reward system. And then there's a reward of finding something, and then there's the reward of overcoming an enemy and you know getting stronger. And all these kind of systems are interlinked, and the difficulty of mm-hmm. balancing these individual elements and not oversupplying one or undersupplying the other, and just Having it like balanced throughout the entire experience of the game, level for level, um, that is just—it's just incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Oh yeah, um, I would probably say that Hollow Knight, in that balance between boredom and anxiety, I would say it probably strays a little towards the anxiety part because that's something that we haven't gotten into. Yeah, we will. Yet, it is despite the lovely and somewhat playful yet melancholic um, art style. You know, it's. I think we haven't mentioned this. It is basically a game about bugs. You are a little <laughs> nameless bug with a little na- uh, nail that, that serves as a sword uh, that traverses an underground hub world, world. yeah, a hub world nest, essentially, yeah. Um, and meets different bugs. That's that's the overall story of the, of the game. I mean, and it's also a part of the art style basically. Like if you exactly. have to picture it's, it, it's a little cute, it's a little playful. But despite all of that, the game is really 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 hard. Um, and quite dark as well. Like in terms of the yeah. atmosphere, it's very, very dim. Oh yeah, that's. I think we will get into all of that yeah. uh, momentarily. But it's deceptively hard, I would say. Yeah. If you just look at the art style, if you look at the promo material, maybe um, 
in-game footage, whatever, if you hear what it is about, you wouldn't think that the platforming and the um, the fighting is as hard as it is. So I would say it's if if that if if that's a scale between boredom and anxiety, it strays a little towards the anxiety part, but that is very much intentional, and that I think that is only to make the uh, you know the reward um, even you know the, the 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 payoff even even bigger, and that is maybe the 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 point to cross over into another series of games that we found. Um, ourselves arguing about in the context of this game. So um, bringing up the subject of difficulty um, as a means to make a gameplay or make gameplay rewarding, there's no way we can you know, avoid talking about the Soulsborne franchise. Um, that's a fr- game franchise that's been established for, I think, the past, let me think, 15 years or something, um, starting out with a game called Demon's Souls for the PlayStation 3. Um and I'm 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 stretching here. It might be like 2008, 2010, or something. It's a relatively early release. Um, they're third-person adventure games, kind of. Let me just yeah. Let me just interject real quick. Um, Demon Souls was released in 2009. 2009. So uh, I wasn't that but far. But it off was released for the PlayStation Three, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was a PlayStation Three title. Um, pre- first only released in Japan, and then people start import started to kind of like. Um, hype about it on the internet, this notoriously difficult, um, really, really kind of confusing game. Um, and th- it shares a lot of similarities um, with the games that you described earlier with um, with Castlevania and the Metroid games. Um, but it also has, an, I would say, an equal amount, if not more, things that are different about it. So let's start with the similarities. Um, you're dropped into a world that is basically, you know, ubiquitously applicable for all the games in that series. You're, st- you're dropped into a world and you basically have no context as to where you are. Um, it's a third-person game, so the, in the beginning you design your character, you have a few like stats that you can um, you can adjust uh, similarly to a, like an RPG, essentially. You have some RPG mechanics. Um, and then you're dropped into the world with a very, very rudimentary tutorial that teaches you just the bare necessity about how to move. And then it sets you on your way. And the first first thing um, to note about it is that um, it is, for the most part, also a true open world game. So meaning you can traverse to a lot of areas. Some areas will require you to um, unlock, um, you know, certain uh, certain obstacles first, like a door, or you have to follow. You have you have to activate something or overcome an enemy. But for the most part, you're free to you know just get on your way first. And the first obstacle that you will encounter is that certain areas um, will just not be you know, traversable because the enemies are just too strong and the game will not tell you that you're not equipped to fight them yet. Um, so you will die. I think when, um, I think when the, the first Dark Souls game was released, the website was preparetodie.org. Um, yeah, f- basically you're dropped into this world with no context and you, you just, they're just like, okay, off you go. Um, and the whole world has, I wouldn't say a melancholic tone to it, it's straight up depressing. Every, oh, yeah. every Almost everything around you is designed to kill you. You basically can't trust 
any NPC that you encounter, they all might be hostile. Um, so you develop kind of this paranoia about the world and you, um, I found myself in my first playthroughs just running around and just being really, really careful. Like beyond every corner there could be an enemy lurking. And more often than not, um, my paranoia was actually um, was actually just. So um, <laughs> these games are these games are notoriously hard. Um, that's the next bit. They're like I said, they're a, they're a third person um, role playing style game. So that means you basically have kind of an behind the shoulder perspective, third person view of your character, and a large part of that game is fighting. So it's about mastery of of the movement and the mechanics. Um, it basically relies on you to test your skills against every new enemy because the game will not tell you um, what enemy does what to you. So you basically have to fight your way through the game and just learn as you go, which means, again, you will die. Um, every time you encounter a new enemy, you have to be real careful. You don't know how strong they are. You don't know their abilities. Um, so it's a whole lot of mastering the movement, dodging the attacks, rolling out of the way, and slowly making progress throughout the world. And that, that includes boss fights or more difficult enemies or unique enemies. Um, and yeah, so notoriously difficult combat system but um as i said mastery um is a huge is, is a huge key factor here so you will at some point unarguably get better at it and um then it becomes more easy but it really relies on you it kind of beats the mechanics down your throat <laughs> you will die until you get it right um, and I think that's a large common denominator between Hollow Knight and Dark Souls. It relies very heavily on your um, on your ability to to learn from from your mistakes. I think, and to find I don't want to say creative solutions, but to kind of adapt your playing style. So if you encounter an enemy in Dark Souls that you can't overcome. Um, I feel like, and that's just my point of view. You might find people that argue that, but because some some of the games are arguable, you know, a bit more buggy than others. Um, but I would still say that if you adapt your playing style according to the challenge and you think outside the box a bit, you will overcome it. So more often than not, you learn from your mistakes. And I found that that was the case for Hollow Knight as well. In situations where I got beat down by boss enemies for days at a time where I just couldn't traverse to a certain area because the boss fight was too hard. And then I tried to think differently about the moveset or I was more disciplined about it. And that's that's a huge, a huge overlapping factor, I feel like, with the Dark Souls games. Both of them rely very heavily on you paying attention to what you're doing, to really pay attention to what you're doing, yeah. watching your movement, being really disciplined about... Um, you know, like not being disciplined about, it, but just being aware to your environment and like where you're going, and kind of anticipate a bit. Um, and it, it it's about being deliberate a lot of the time. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You can't you can't half-ass it. It's it's not the type of game that you can just sit on the couch and just play while you're doing something else or just to chill no. out. It requires complete focus and. I think that's where we can kind of draw the connection between between this. Yeah, and, and um, what I meant with it, it requires you to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Precisely, it's not the the boss fights or any fights are not about going in there with your sword uh, swinging. Um, you will die in yep. the, in a matter of seconds in in almost any boss fight in in Hollow Knight if you if you're approaching the game like that. You need to know the enemy's attack pattern. 
you need to know your own abilities uh, and you need to know oh when the enemy attacks like that I need to dodge like that and then uh, do this attack uh, and th that's what I mean by you need to be deliberate you can't just go in there hack and slay, hack and slay style uh, and and fuck up some some opponents right that's not yeah there's, 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 there's no space for button mashing at all no, um, and I think no. I think the transition that you made between um, between Hollow Knight and Dark Souls I think we initially came from difficulty um, the level of difficulty and I think I'm, I'm gonna gonna get back to that now um, get a bit more on track with my with my ramble here so sure. um, more than any other game in in my you know still relatively short lifetime of playing video games um, there's no other game where I had where where I actually jumped off the couch and yelled out loud after overcoming an enemy that just wiped the floor with me for a day. <laughs> um, and I think it's worth talking about that because um, Dark Souls, and I, I actually remember now that we're talking about it, I, may, I wrote a paper in university about how Dark Souls made dying in a video game scary again. Um, Dark Souls is really, really, really good at like making you... Like like keeping this 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 graph that we were talking about between boredom and anxiety on the like just on the verge of the manageable because you will die but it's part of the gameplay feedback so um, the game will most of the time when you die make you see or like you you will end up seeing that it was due to your inability to master the controls so there's always that little bit of leverage where you're like I'll get this guy. This is not unfair. Like I'll manage this. Of course, there's frustration. Of course, there's there's you know anger about oh my god, I have to fucking do this again. But, but the reward, the payoff, when you finally get behind that gate, when you finally get behind that enemy, when that enemy that wiped the floor with you finally dies, that is un unlike anything I had previously experienced in those games. So the reward itself. Or not, not the reward. The difficulty is kind of a reward system in and of itself because it sets yeah. the bar so high. Oh yeah, players have to actually rise kind of to the challenge, which is problematic in another way because it established this kind of like get good edge lord, we're oh, real yeah. gamers culture. But I feel like that's subject for another episode. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Um, but but this the idea that you have to rise to the occasion, rise to the challenge, and when the fucking Excuse me. When the challenge, uh, when the challenge it's is too overcome, this <laughs> it's is, too this, late. This this episode already has a little e next to it. There's nothing we we, we can do it's about fine, it now. It's fine. <laughs> so so to conclude, um, when that enemy kind of falls and when the challenge is overcome, this kind of visceral yeehaw that you will find yourself like blurting out. It's just like there's a thrill to this. There's a thrill to this, and it keeps it more on the anxiety level, I think, rather than yeah. the than the than the than the than the boredom level. But the payoff, the payoff is just like here's some 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 serotonin that you earn for yourself. Yeah, but I think um, that's a very good point, and I agree with that a lot. I haven't played the um, Dark Souls games, uh, just for the record. Yeah, um, but I have uh, watched. You and other buddies of ours play that game yeah. quite a lot, so I know somewhat what it's about and how it looks and how it works and everything. Um, and I think the idea of okay, uh, the the more difficult a game is, the higher the the payout is if you if you succeed. That is not a novel idea. 
Absolutely not. That is, but I think uh, this idea also lives and dies with how fair the challenges are. A hundred percent. And this is where Hollow Knight absolutely excels for me. Agreed. Because there are, it is very, very hard, as you said, but there are no cheap deaths. There are no truly overpowered enemies. Every, and I mean, I mean that every single time I died, it's like there's an immediate immediate feedback, and that, is, that there is no pop up in the game. It's just a feedback just from how well the mechanics work that yeah. that the game gives you just by you dying, and you will automatically every single time go like, oh yeah, I I should have done that, or I should not have done this, and you probably will know right away what you did wrong, and you know. That it was your fault, and it, you know that that death was probably avoidable, and I think that is really where uh, what makes this work. Because just making the game hard for the sake of the game being hard—that's that can be super frustrating and super um, just bad game design, in my in my opinion. If uh, you know the the mechanics aren't on par, yeah, but the mechanics. And the fighting and the platforming are sublime in this game. They're, Absolutely. There is nothing to be said about that. They just work as intentioned 100% of the time, I'd say. Yeah. I think I think it's a good good idea to now transition um, into something we both have hinted at. Hinted at. Um, I think um, for me personally, that could best be described as mastery. Um, so... The idea of mastering a game's a game's mechanics, and I think um, Hollow Knight more than more than other games, um, maybe even more than Dark Souls, um, is about is about mechanical mastery. Um, maybe maybe from my um, maybe I want to I, I kind of want to bring it back to the beginning of this uh, of, of this conversation where I where I said that these types of games are usually not my cup of tea um, and I quick really quickly just want to want to want to elaborate on why that is a lot of the times I look for an experience in a video game that offers me story and depth in terms of the characters and um, just just something to experience other than to just practice something over and over and get really good at it. So a lot of the games that are fit for like esports or that are um, even, you know, like indie games, I think Super Meat Boy would be a good a good example for that. Those are games that are notoriously difficult but rely on the same kind of idea that when you get really good at the mechanics, when you master the movement, when you master your abilities in that game, that's when it becomes really rewarding. Before that, it's just grinding it out until you get good at it. Um, and that has always not been enough for me to keep an interest up into a game. I never got anything out of this idea of competing with myself or or other other people just to be better at you know executing those mechanics than others or myself or good enough to pass through a game. And I think that's where Hollow Knight exceeded for me because it does rely very heavily on you mastering the movement, the combat systems. Um, because like you pointed out, it is very, very difficult at times but it is never unfair, um, at least from my point of view. And Hollow Knight is the first time where this idea of mechanical mastery 
in a setting like a 2D platformer or a Metroidvania or whatever you want to call it has worked for me because of the world building, because of the um, the imaginative environments and the, the the soundtrack and like just the overall immersiveness is not a not a word I think, but like the overall immersion of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that is uh, where we get back to something we we mentioned earlier. Um, the, the, this mastery, or you know, having to work towards a level of mastery, um, isn't the whole point of the game. It exists in the context of the overall game and the story and the art style, because this is why you do it. You don't do it for the sake of mastering the, the mechanics. You do it to be able to explore more of the game, I, I think. Because if you're talking about uh, games like Super Meat Boy or something, that's the, that's all there is. It's just mechanics. That is not the case Agreed. for for um, for Hollow Knight. Those those mechanics and you know, working on your your skills exists within your desire to to experience the game as a whole, right? I think this is the big difference, and this is what makes it maybe um, interesting for people like you that say, I, I can't just grind mechanics for the sake of, of doing it, right? Absolutely. Um, I think one of my favorite things to feel um, when, I was, when I was playing that game um, was a sense of progression in my ability to navigate the world. So the way that you kind of save the game a lot of times, or where you when you when you arrive in a new area, you discover you discover a resting spot, which is usually a bench or a place like some sort of safe place to sit on. Um, the game will then save for you, and it becomes your new starting point in case you should die. Um, and one of the big changes for me that I that I realized over time is. Um, I found myself really anxious in a new area when I didn't have a map for it, and I was kind of like flopping around trying to trying to figure out which parts are safe to navigate for me and which are still yeah. very difficult. And then once you find that bench and you rest on it, and even if you die in the process, at some point you become really confident and like trespassing through that level because you've kind of your skill has adapted to the challenges that are that the environment presents you with and i felt that confidence that kind of naturally comes when you just navigate that world over time i thought that was just really, really like a really good thing for a game to you know to equip you with another parallel um or at least something we discussed that could be looked at as a parallel um was the way that um story or, or story elements were were used in in, in Hollow Knight and, and Dark Souls. I think that's when, where where comparison um, came up at some point between us. Um, so Hollow Knight um, communicates a lot of its story, at least the way that I felt it, through the environments, through um, the music, through the atmosphere. Um, you communicate with characters. There's a lot more friendly characters in um, in Hollow Knight than there is in in Dark Souls. Usually, I'd say, um, or in the Soulsborne franchise. So you have a lot of you have a lot of lovable characters, which I think is one distinction between Dark Souls and Hollow Knight. Um, Hollow Knight has a lot of lovable, lovable characters that you encounter over time. Um, little little bug characters that are friendly or helpful in some way or another. I wouldn't. I think lovable is maybe stretching it a little bit. Oh uh, no! Um, I, I, I found some pretty lovable on, creatures. <laughs> some of them, yeah, but. Um, 
I think based on the setting, I I never really there they range like there's this most of them are kind of neutral. I think mm. um, there's some that are pretty kind to you and friendly towards you, and there there's obviously uh, some that aren't. But I I don't I think that should it becomes clear when we get into the the specifics of the story. I don't think it it's I, to me just based on the setting those characters didn't come across as like lovable or overly friendly, right? Yeah. It's okay. just every everybody I what in you're that going for, yeah. every in that everybody in that world is also kind of I uh, a little lost, I would say, or just a little weird. Just them being there makes them a little weird, I I would say. Yeah. So the the the, the Soulsborne franchises, maybe in terms of the storytelling, um, yeah. just to, to to delve into that real quick, they don't give you a whole lot to work with. There's not going to be elaborate cutscenes that explain the story to you. There's usually an opening sequence at the beginning of the game, where some kind of voice from you know like some kind of off text will give you a very very cryptic rundown of the world that you're entering. Usually something about some something revolving around souls, some cryptic, um, some cryptic threat that happened in the world, and everything went dark or something. Like, I think some to a certain degree, it's RPG tropes, I would say. But um, but basically, they they don't really establish the world. It the the world establishes it establishes itself to the player through its hostility and through exploring it. Um, and the main storytelling aspect usually are dialogues with the NPCs that you discover, um, which in and of itself are cryptic as well. Nobody will explicitly tell you anything, give you context. They will just be in, in their respective function and talk from their point of view. So you get these fragmented bits and pieces that you can then piece together with um, item descriptions. So you find a lot of items throughout the game, weapons, armor, um, whether it's keys or consumables, and all of these have very elaborate descriptions that you can then access in your menu. And that is essentially how the world building is done, through exploration, through these dialogues, and through descriptions of items. Um, so not like a classical, classically narrative-based game or even like any other RPG. I mean, if you're, uh, you, you don't have to really look that far if you go to, to a regular RPG I, like Dragon Age or something where, where, where the story arc is kind of, or, or The Witcher even. Like there's, there's, a, there's a very, very distinct way of telling a story. That is not the case here. Um, you're not really progressing through a story, right? It's... Yeah. Uh, you kind of, if you if you choose to do so, you can reconstruct a story that has happened before you got there. But your character doesn't really progress through a story, right? That is an excellent point. You kind of in, in, in the Souls games, you you often arrive after some kind of like calamity has ravaged the Absolutely, world. So yeah. the, the world the world is dead and everybody kind of has lost their mind. Um everybody's hella cynical and really downtrodden and the world's really broken and everything's everything's sort of fucked. Um so the main events have already taken place and you're kind of you're kind of jumping in after the whole place has gone to shit. Um, and that's really interesting because that is a commonality, I think, that Hollow Knight and the Soulsborne franchises, a Soulsborne franchise, pardon, uh, share. Um, you arrive in, in the world of Hollow Knight and there's not really, you know, any context as to why you're there 
what your purpose is there, who you are, and what you're your supposed character to doesn't do. talk at your all. Your character is completely mute, um, and the only way that you can make sense of it is how your environment reacts to you, and basically, you know, what you do in the world, which is a lot of the times explore and then kill other things. Um, and depending on you know, depending on how you play the game in Dark Souls, um, where every 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 NPC, every every non-player character, every computer computer character that you encounter, you can kill. It has an effect on the game. That's not the case for um, that's not the case for Hollow Knight. There are certain enemies that you can kill and that you can cannot kill. So um, the game is a bit more linear. Is the wrong word. Um, but it kind of it kind of gives you it kind of gives you more to work with, and in the sense that you can make some deductions about your character. At least I felt I could make some deductions about your character based on the types of enemies I encounter and based on how the world reacted to me. And that is just not the case for Dark Souls because in Dark Souls everything feels hostile. Well, uh, I get, I mean this is probably the point where we have to say um, spoiler warning. <laughs> we we got through like an hour of this thing without without having to do that. I I think that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. Um, but this is probably the point where we it's uh, not avoidable anymore. Where we get into like specifics and maybe things that happen towards the end of the game. Yeah. So if you if anything that we um, talked about up until now sounds interesting to you. Um, just That's why you out. exit this and go play it. Exactly. <laughs> probably you probably should be careful from this point on because we will get into specific plot points and yeah. uh, maybe some things that that you might might not want to know before playing the game. Just for the that's record. fair to say. Adding to something that you said, um, I think that. Those both of the these the this uh, Hollow Knight the game and the franchise of of you know Dark Souls and and Bloodborne, um, they do a good job of creating an atmosphere that lets you know that you are you know you're coming into a world that has existed before you came there and that who uh, whose purpose is not. To exist for you to explore it, you're just an an outside intruder, so to speak. That's often the the feeling. That's kind of the feeling that I got playing Hollow Knight a lot of the times. That you you're kind of intruding on on a world, um, you're an, an outside force, so to speak. And it's not just a, a playground for your main character, right? Uh, the the hero of the story. No, you're just kind of. You start off as inconsequent, inconsequential, um, and nobody, and then throughout the story, you change the the events of of that, uh, or, or change the world. That's uh, you know, that's kind of the point of of any game. But I think that you really get the feeling that this is a, a an autonomous uh, universe, so to speak, right? Yeah, I I I fully understand what you mean. Um, I would I would even extend that and go further and say I think the world does a good job at um, at not just telling you um, that you're an outsider. I think in Dark Souls, I'd I'd say even though at some point they will refer to you as like something special, it still feels like you're completely unwelcome. Like you're some kind of like you just don't matter. You shouldn't matter. 
Ah, uh, yeah. And I mean, in Hollow Knight, it's similar, but I think I think there's a, co- a characters that are friendly towards you, as you said, and they want to help you, and they are neutral or or positive as to you being there. But there's also a lot of character characters that are clearly uncomfortable around you or even afraid. I think I had the feeling that a lot of characters were afraid of my character. Yeah, highly skeptical. Or, or what he represents. Yeah. And um, yeah, um, but getting back to how the story is told, as you said, I think it's very cryptic in bits and pieces and in a way that is easy to miss. And is I think it's very, very optional. Mm. Paying attention to the stories, the overall story, the overarching story, and especially the details. I'd go even further than that. Making sense of the overarching stories and the and some specifics of the story is incredibly difficult during your first playthrough. Yeah. Because everything is so cryptic, because it is so easy to miss uh, some kind of ladder in some back room of some uh, house that you explored, because it is so easy to miss one NPC that you can interact with, um, because a lot of the story also is not as much as in, in the Dark Souls game, but some of it is also in kind of item descriptions and, and stuff like that. Um, where I would call the story, very, I would say it's in, uh, inaccessible, in, inaccessible, that's the word. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 the story is much more inaccessible than it is with most other games, I would say. Yeah, you have to. You're kind of working your way through the story in a similar way that you're working your way through the game, which is like it requires effort. Um, but I think Hollow Knight does something. Uh, Hollow Knight exceeds at that in a different way than Dark Souls does because Dark Souls kind of has this has this benefit of. Um, this kind of hardcore atmosphere going about it. So a lot of the people who who will who will who would criticize, you know, the lack of of world building through story, um, would be you know faced with the counter argument of yeah, but it's like told through the atmosphere, and if you want it, you can get it from the items, and like it's kind of it's kind of this like um, you know high nosed. Um, yeah, absolutely. Bit of like gaming snobriety attitude that is, you know, oh, it's cryptic, then it's too difficult for you. Like you, you just exactly. not, you're not trying hard enough. You're not Exa- making an exact, effort that's enough. That's exactly what I was I was about to say. And with 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 Hollow Knight, I felt like Hollow Knight did a much better job at just also activating my own imagination and has like it had me thinking about my role in this world and about the other characters and, and about the world itself in a in a way that just was really more curious and investigative than than in other games um I think I found myself doing that and um and not necessarily even though the, the world is quite you know to a certain degree a sad place or or or, or a desolate place even um I still felt like really eager to explore, and the, the exploration, the act of exploration, and the imagination that I got from it was still kind of. I don't want to say, yeah, no, I want to say wholesome. Oh, sorry, what? What? Of, what exactly in that game is is wholesome? 
Um, the the way that it sparked my imagination. I think the okay because because yeah. because a lot of the times because of Dark Souls, in my opinion, for example, Dark Souls lacks empathy. Dark Souls has. In terms of the world building, there's hardly any redeeming features about the world, and that okay, is yeah. and that is not the case in Hollow Knight. You will find nice characters. There's there's tons of beauty in there. There's beautiful landscapes. There's beautiful moments. There's beautiful music. There's moments of peace and quiet and just like I found oh, yeah. myself absorbing moments just with the soundtrack in a safe spot and Dark Souls lacks that completely so the way that it kind of goes full circle and inspires your imagination about this world that has these really beautiful areas and these really peaceful and calm moments and sometimes really nice characters and then some really grim and spooky or disgusting areas like I don't know it just got my imagination going um, in a way like it, it engaged me with the world in a different way and in a way okay. more fundamental way than Dark Souls did Oh, okay. That that uh, I would uh, agree with that. Uh, agree with that entirely. I I think I misunderstood you. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was I was um, too cryptic. No, no, no. Because um, as I said, I haven't um, played the the Dark Souls uh, any of the Dark Souls games, but from seeing you know watching you play it or whatever, yeah. or just you know the game's out for for forever now. You can't get past it in some some way. Um, I always felt like it was. It's very barren. It's very dead. It's. I think the game is also kind of ugly, um, intentional and kind of unintentional. Just from watching it, it also it always looked a little hollow to me in a way. It's really I, funny that you use that specific term. It's really funny that you use that specific right. term. We we have to put a pin in that and revisit this exact piece of the conversation when you've played Dark Souls. Well, yeah, it's um, I'll I'll trust you on that one. Yeah. Um, so uh, I I absolutely agree agree with you um that the um Hollow Knight is more it the the game the world the world has more redeeming qualities that make that make you want to um, understand it and that make you want to know more about it, which is probably just from the outside looking in a feeling that I w maybe wouldn't get with the Dark Souls worse because it's it's not a world that would entice me to, to do that, right? It's like a, a world that is so dead and so barren that it, What's what's the point, right? What's the point to to exploring that and get trying to get to know more about it? And I think this is what you you were getting at. Uh, on the other hand, I agree with it a little bit. That makes for me that doesn't mean that the story is any easier to understand. Yeah. Because I I'll I'll admit that I'm I missed most of these specifics of the overarching story. Um, hmm. During my playthrough, I I'll freely admit that, and I found myself confused um, by what's going on quite a couple of times. Not in a negative sense, but because you can't. And I think that is the point. You can't enjoy the world for what it is, and the things that happen for what they are, and the music for what it is, and just you can kind of, as you said, and I I think this is very important. Just. Imagine just uh, you know, just use your imagination to make up a 
what might have happened just by the pictures that are presented to you. Yeah. And that works really, really well. But as to how that relates to what the game actually tries to tell you happened, doesn't didn't always work for me 100%. I think I think what you you just what you just said um sparked this kind of analogy in my head. I feel like playing Dark Souls feels like what walking a crime scene feels like. It's the equivalent of <laughs> it's the equivalent of like arriving at a crime scene where a murder has taken place and there's nothing left to save. Like the only thing that you're doing is gathering evidence of what whatever the fuck went down. Um and that's not the case with Hollow Knight. With Hollow Knight, I always had this feeling, okay, like there's redeemable qualities about this. There's yeah. something there's something worthwhile here. There's something worth saving. Now exactly. interesting interesting fact because you were saying you missed most of your playthrough. If you were to ask, this is the story of the playthrough. If you were to ask me now, I what was about to of, do that. What any of the stories of the fucking Dark Souls games is, I would probably point you to any Vati Vidya video on YouTube. Vati Vidya, for those of you that don't know, is kind of the lore god of Dark Souls. He's, he's, he's. He's he has fi he's figured out most of the characters and um, the actual world <laughs> for for other people on YouTube in how, and I I shit you not in hour long videos and um, I could not tell you specifically I mean like in detailed fashion um, what the Dark Souls games are about individually I could not tell you for sure what the second one is about I could kind of tell you what the third one is about probably also the first. Demon Souls, that's that's probably the easiest of them. And then there's Bloodborne. And I mean, there's there's part of the franchise Souls franchise that I haven't played. I haven't played um the samurai one, which name who which name I forgot now. Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice. So basically, I could not tell you. Um, I could tell you the general principles of what these stories are, like because like, mm. they always kind of follow the same idea, right? Like that brings me back to this idea of you walk a crime scene where a calamity has yeah. pl taken place, and the world, like you said, is dead by default, and th those that still exist in it are either are either you know uh, corrupted by it or just you know fucking insane, um, yeah. and that's not the case in Hollow Knight. Hollow Knight, like you said, has redeemable features and you care about the world in a different sense. So for me, the sense of exploration was less of like a... It kind of didn't... It didn't feel like, you know, you're driving past a car crash and you're just seeing what had played out, but you're like... You're aware that a calamity has happened, but you still you still care for, you know, redeeming the world in a way. Yeah. Um, and I was about to ask you because I... You told me that you haven't read up on any of the story after playing Hollow Knight, right? I haven't. I had I my did. own ideas. I had my own I ideas. Yeah, I did because after finishing it, um, well, it was two weeks ago or something, um, I did re uh, watch a couple of videos, read, a, read up a little bit on it because the story, the overall, it just left me wondering a little bit. Okay. And it, I want to ask you, just try and explain to me what happened. What's the story of Hollow Knight? What happened before you arrive and what are you doing and all of that? Okay. Um, so 
I like I said, Again, I've never I've never done any huge l- ass spoiler warning at this point. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure I want to be spoiled. <laughs> maybe at, at, maybe, at that maybe point. not. Maybe Alex tells uh, only tells the things that aren't uh, true. That's also possible. Yeah. So so <laughs> disclaimer: everything I'm saying is my interpretation. I've not read up on a single piece oh, I'll, of I'll, lore. Um, I'll tell right? you. I as I said, I I read into it a little bit. Okay. If you so, want, if you want, if you want uh, me to. What I would like, I think, is if you told me if I was right about something. Um, okay. but, but don't tell me what it really is then because I like okay. my interpretation of it. Um, okay, that's fair. So the way that I that I pieced it together, a lot of the times by the interaction with, um, with the other characters, and I think I've told you about this um, and you hinted at it as well, your character, this little, this little kind of um, bug character um, is kind of treated like an intruder, but not just as an intruder, but as something of a kind of like a calamity so to speak like like something that is non-negotiable something that is bound to happen to the world and i always had analogies with kind of a grim reaper figure like you're the inevitable death that is coming to the world um and the world is finally kind of like released from this from this scourge that 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 is happening through it. this infestation the infection that is that is kind of rippling through the world so you're kind of an an antidote if you will um that would be one explanation which would also explain why you're mute because you yourself are kind of you're kind of an empty vessel you're an event that takes place rather than a character the other thing that i thought would be that you could be the reincarnation of something that already exists in the world and that has been corrupted and has been reborn um, which, you know, Q, again, spoiler, uh, there's a character called the Hollow Knight, which has been corrupted, I think, by the... Uh, at least by the way, the title uh, Hollow Knight, it's not you. No, it's of course, that, that's, 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 where, that's what I was, what I was no, getting I, at. I, I, this, this was not for you, this was oh, okay. just for, because it took me like an hour or two, or maybe even longer, probably. I think the first time you really um, understand that is when you get into the city, the city of tears, and that is like I don't know, f- ten hours in, maybe. And then not not that no, long. No, it's, it's far in there. It's far in there. And that's when I I think that's when I realized for the first time, oh, I'm not the Hollow Knight. I'm not the protagonist here. <laughs> I'm not the protagonist. Um, so I was thinking that um, because because of okay, the whole the overall setting is this like um, kind of nature bug bug thing that you described it as, as, as like a like a net of interconnected um, nests so to speak so like different kind of settlements there's a there's a mantis settlement then there's other bugs and all, all these kind of things and I thought maybe you're you're kind of the offspring or the reincarnation of something that has been um, has, that has died in the process of the corruption of this world so I thought maybe you're the the reincarnation of the hollow Knight or something um, because the real hollow Night again, massive spoiler warning is I think the final boss of the of the game, and he has also been corrupted by the by the by the corruption that that has spread throughout this world. So that's how I read it. Either you're kind of you're you're, you're death personified, um, coming to release the world from from the plague, or you are um, you're a reincarnation of something formerly good that has now kind of like come back to the world. That's how I read it. You told me to only tell you when you got something right? Yeah. Okay, let's get on with the next segment of this. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you said that uh, you felt like you were the antidote for the... Um, Almost the like infection. an antibiotic, yeah. 
and that's I think that's that's kind of true. Yeah, I think that is um could be is is a is a interpretation in line with what probably is the intended story. I'd say mm-hmm. um, your in the, the in reincarnation thing. I think that's somewhat synonymous with uh, with this with what the story is. Cool. Um, I think there's um, one character that is turns out for the whole story to be very um, important. Um, I didn't realize that at the at the time um, that you haven't mentioned at all. Uh, but he is a, a reason for why pretty much all of that happened. Uh, like the the central figure, maybe even more so than the Hollow Knight, and he you get to know or you get to know about him pretty late in the game. I I'd say there's hints at him, I think, but really, um, like he's na- it only becomes clear very late in the game, if okay. at all. I must have missed that. And so did I. That's that's kind of the point. <laughs> um, but, but this is maybe uh, for me. I'm not 100 sure how much I enjoy a story being being told that way because I I cannot pretend that I'm 100 happy with it because at times this is really at times the only thing that I was maybe a little bit frustrated about mm-hmm. that I just could not get a grasp on what the story is um and again to the point where I felt the need to um to read up on it afterwards um also there this is the uh, this is a game with multiple different endings um depending on you know certain events in the game and certain items then that you can or cannot acquire acquire um so yeah this is um the ending part that's kind of standard for me when when I play a game with different endings that I'll just choose one and work towards that and then just watch the other ones on YouTube. Yeah. But still, um, yeah. After the story, the, the the story was always like this little bit of a little moment of disappointment where, like, even the you because you're waiting for the ending to to tie it all together to yeah. bring sense into the world and closure you're watching. Closure, yeah. You're watching the ending, and it's all of the endings are pretty short. I think the one that that I got and you were with me at that, uh, yeah, was probably the shortest one of all of them, and it left me a little disappointed. For like, oh, this is this isn't this is not closure at all. This this I have understood. Like, I'm no smarter than I was like uh, ten minutes ago. About I have the questions. <laughs> I have even more questions. And this is what do you think about um, you know this way of telling a story? Like I said, I think it really depends. Um, I think um, I think games that want to be cryptic just for the sake of being cryptic. So like using it as a as a means to create some kind of mysticism or kind of a kind of a threatening atmosphere by keeping the player in the dark. That rarely I think that is about as useful as making a game purely difficult. 
I think uh, it's it's a one trick pony, and it more often than not doesn't work. Um, when it comes to combining it with other things, like like Hollow Knight, for example, did with with a world that sparks imagination and um, you know a character that grows an ability and all these these kind of means of um, means of gameplay and ex- like like experiencing the game um, are tied in with each other. So like there's a there's a growth that happens. The world around you is changing as your character progresses um, in a way that feels natural. And you can make more deductions about new places that you go and through new interactions. I think when these are balanced, then it works really well, um, especially when the overall tone of the game um, matches that. I personally um, like when a game tells me a story and gives me narrative clues that are distinctive enough for me to understand, okay, this is what happened. This is not what my, like purely my interpretation of it is. Um, Good example for 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 like story based games would be like as of late I've been really into the new God of War or like the most recent God of War or I've um taken a taken a very long look at The Last of Us Part Two. Um, so these are these are games that 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 thrive on a very narrative experience. Um, I normally would say I prefer that than having to kind of piece the story together as I go. Um, but in the case of Hollow Knight, I think it it helped because if you have a world that is so so cryptic and so much about like so much of, such a large part of the gameplay is discovering new areas and discovering the world as you as you progress through it, I don't think it would make sense to be overly literal about um, about the story. <laughs> okay, you just about said everything that I was trying. I was about to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, because because again, um, the, the, towards the ending of the game and after finishing it, there was like a little bit of disappointment creeping in, maybe. Or yeah. I, I wouldn't say disappointment, or more like um, I don't know, an, an itch that wasn't scratched. Maybe it's more like that. Um, but then I. Again, I I read up uh, I read up on it. Then I watched a couple of videos on it. Yeah, and um, most of the time the reaction was like, uh, "That's kind of neat, I guess." So it's like, "Oh, what? A, a, sure, why not?" It was like um, there were a couple of moments in that were true aha moments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, it didn't change that much. And in the end, I think that what you said is true, and that's the conclusion that I arrived at as well. It wouldn't have worked any other way. Mm. I think the um, how the world is constructed, the art style, the it being a Metroidvania type of game, telling the story, as you said, in an over overly literal or overly narrative way, wouldn't have worked with that. I think. Yeah. Um. So. I definitely can see um, why they did it, probably for the better. Um, whether you can, I think a lot of people can, um, you know, get some kind of secondhand, um, no, not secondhand, more secondary um, additional enjoyment out of, you know, getting into all the additional media, you know, yeah. the videos, pulling up a wiki. Every five minutes, um, 
I think that works for certain people. I think a lot of a lot of people get as you as it is with the gameplay, um, you know, the, the grinding, the gameplay mechanics, and and getting really good at that. It's kind of similar with um, you know getting re really getting into the story. I think that works to kind of a similar effect, right? Um, I don't think uh, if that works. I don't know whether that works for me or not. I, I, I think I'm fine with what, watching a couple of videos and mm. having a, a sort of broad idea of, of what went down there and what the story is um, that they were trying to tell and how close or far my interpretation of it of it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so I'm I'm kind of on the fence on on that, but I think with the overall um, atmosphere that they were going for this probably was the only way to go. What I keep thinking back on is what kind of experience did I have with this game? Just in terms of like how do I feel about it? And I I I just had to conclude for myself that more than other games, especially I think more than any other mechanic based game, this world has drawn me in. Um so I had to ask myself even if the story was 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 cryptic in, in in certain ways, and I might not have made sense of it, um, would it have made more? Like, would it have would it have been any more rewarding if there was more of a story element to it? And I found myself arriving at a no conclusion for that, simply because more than other games, this sparked my imagination. It sparked my curiosity, and um, I had a I had a genuine interest as I was you know exploring that world to learn more about it. And the the stuff that was going on in my head, and the fact that I was kind of feeling like a little detective, and I was I was excited about every new area and new character interaction or new puzzle that I encountered. I feel like giving me like rather than giving me any kind of like narrative chunk in order to make sense of that piece of of the world in a very literal way, the game got it's just really good at triggering my own imagination and. Um, most of the time I feel like games are on the very literal side where there's no room for interpretation, only like whether you like that story or not. Or there's just, you know, a mechanics-based game where anything, you know, story-based can be maybe found in some sort of collectible or item description. And I feel like they've hit hit a sweet spot for me in terms of inspiring me to think about the world that I was going through or that I was experiencing on my own. So for me, I kind of enjoyed this way of storytelling. And like you said, basically, I, th I have a hard time having uh, picturing this game with a more, you know, more cutscene-y or more, yeah, more yeah. literal story. But any less would have just made it, you know, again, a purely like mechanical grind, I think. Um, I think what you say is, is true that it, the, the story bits that are presented to you being a little more sparse maybe and a little more cryptic definitely triggers your own imagination. That's a good thing. Um, now, uh, l looking at um, the, the, that material afterwards, I think there were some moments where it's like, had I known that when I was went to this and this place, maybe I would have in gotten more enjoyment out of the level design or maybe I would have... Um, gotten some enjoyment, enjoyment uh, of uh, because I discovered something in the background that yeah. makes makes a lot of sense in in the context of that 
um, of the lore or that plot point that mm-hmm. so, just you know feeling like something might have been lost on you just because you weren't on top of the story at that point. Yeah, I get it. Um, I think that is maybe the other side of that coin. But then again, it's I didn't play the game for the story. I think that's that it that is what it comes down to. Okay. Um, I didn't play the game, the game for the story. The story is one part of the whole. Um, and I think the story is just as much part of the, uh, or just an equal part of the world as the art style is and the music is. And, you know, all of those are are on equal footing. And yeah. not and the, it's not that the, the world serves the story and the music serves the story. It's like, they're all equal, and maybe the music, the, the, the plot, maybe just um, that that makes it not as bad if you kind of don't get all of the plot at uh, on the in, in the first the first time, and then obviously also um, add some type of replay um, um, replay value. Yeah, replay just, value, uh, some, absolutely. Some some incentive to to play the game again, maybe. I think that's an amazing so conclusion. Is, and that's, as you said, maybe a good point to to uh, conclude our, you know, excursions into the world of Hollow Knight or Hollow Nest. That is the <laughs> place where all of this takes place. Um, obviously, from both of us, a huge recommendation. Absolutely. If, any of, if if you are into Metroidvania types type games, it's a must buy. If you are into just um, really, really fundamentally solid 2D platformer uh, fighting type games, this is it. If you look for beautiful games, just want to look at beautiful surroundings and backdrops and animations for 50 hours and can bear the game being quite hard, this is also for you. I can't recommend this game enough. I get that it's kind of niche and that it's not for everybody. And that's okay. But if this sounds like it might be for you, it is for you. Yeah. And from from my perspective, I wanna I wanna get in on that and say if you feel like it's not for you, that's precisely why you should play it, because that's where I came from with this. Um, like I said, these types of games are, you know, usually genres that I avoid totally. And um I would have I would have missed out big time. So even if you're not into two that two D platformers, even if you're not into, you know, games that rely to a certain degree on mechanical mastery, um, even if you just like games with beautiful soundtracks or just amazing art style, if that's all that interests you, I cannot you know, recommend this enough to you. The payoff is huge if you if you endure um, the sometimes jarring difficulty. And um, for me, it's been a really unique experience. Um, and it's managed to capture my attention um, at times where I needed um, you know distraction the most because it just it just sucks you in. So oh yeah, absolute recommendation. Also. Um if it if you're not sure if it is for you, just give it a chance. Mm-hmm. You will give it two three hours. You will realize if it is for you or not. The game is like, I think it goes for fifteen dollars at the most. Yeah, I think that is the the regular price. Uh, you will probably be able to get it, you know, on, on sale 
every now and then. It is uh, in the uh, Xbox Game Pass. It is. Um, that's a good recommendation because the that's usually one euro or slash one dollar for the first three months if you're trying it out. So. Yeah. This is uh, getting back to the very beginning of this episode. This is yeah. the most insane part that they are selling this this amount of of game for fifteen dollars. Yeah, it's this nuts. is insane. It's nuts. Um, so this is money well well spent. Um, again, can't recommend this game enough. Um, but. We may may have a little bit of time left for this yes. episode, and we we were planning on getting back to some of these segments that we were doing in earlier episodes. You know, revisit some of those maybe. Um, so yeah, I think I want to get back to to an um, segment that we did in our first episode, which was German. I think we called it German of the Week back then. Um, <laughs> that was three months ago, so it's uh, not exactly German of the Week, but probably more German of the Quartal. That's not a catchy title, though. <laughs> let's let's see what we'll, we'll do with that. But another German of an unspec- unspecified uh, interval of time... Um, when the while the first one was you know obviously humorous in nature, this one is probably a little uh, more genuine, not a little more genuine. it is much more genuine uh some German that has um really been a little bit in in a spotlight in a niche spotlight, so to speak um and this German is named Thomas. Panke, who is a um, a YouTuber and the owner of a toy store in Frankfurt, Germany, and he has been in an ongoing fight with Lego, the Danish um, you know toy company. That I was about to say he owns a, he owns a Lego store essentially, a brick store, not the toy well, store. Well, right? that's the first problem. Get into that soon. Gotcha. Um, you know, everybody knows Lego, the toy bricks, colored bricks that you can stack, um, that you can ruin your foot with if you step on them. Um, everybody played with them as a child. I think there's, that's a very household, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, a company and and toy. In it's it's been around for. What sixty, seventy years now? It's been it's around been for around decades, forever. Yeah. Um, and so, it has become more and more of a hobby for adults. And they have more and more sets for adult people, right? It's not only a, a kid's toy; it's also a hobby for grown adults. I think that's. Something that is important to mention, and as you said, this uh, you know, uh, Mr. Panke, he used to own a store that sold Lego sets, and he sold Lego sets exclusively. Um, but and he produced videos for his YouTube channel that I don't know, like two three years ago, was at 
I'm gonna say uh, 150,000 subscribers, where he just showed people sets from Lego that he found to be interesting. Um, some that he sold in his store, some that he didn't sell in his store. Just it was obvious. This is just something that he cared about, that he's really into. He is very, very knowledgeable about. And so he had the, the, the story that he made money with, he had the YouTube thing that he made money with. And I think he was, even back at that time, probably the biggest YouTuber in that Lego niche, I, I'd say probably, it's in the German market at least. Yeah, in the German market, and you're probably right. What happened uh, two years ago, probably, was that... Um, YouTube, uh, no, that Lego started to fuck with him. Because as uh, passionate and knowledgeable as he was about the whole thing, he was also very willing to criticize Lego for uh, bad sets that they put out, for just bad quality, for puzzling uh, uh, decisions. Um, Also, he had a kind of a a, um, personal problem with the whole thing because as a a toy store owner um, he didn't get a lot of the good sets as he said because Lego kind of insists on uh, to to supply a lot of the best sets special ones, a limited edition one and so uh, through certain retailers like um, Toys R Us and uh, two or three other German a retail and their um, own flagship chains. stores, I think, and obviously their own flagship stores. That makes a lot of sense. But all of those other retailers that they sell through are notoriously broke in Germany. They are like um, undersupplied as hell. <laughs> they are constantly on the verge of um, of going under economically. So this is, I think, a personal question for him was always: Why do those Jokes, jokes of of retail chains get the good things, and all of those little um, toy store um, owners that really care about the shit and that are knowledgeable knowledgeable about it, that really dedicate their their stores to all of that, they don't get it. And that's, I think, that is maybe the origin about it. And Lego wasn't too happy that probably the biggest uh, German YouTuber in that section was oftentimes critical of them, so they tried to fuck with him. And they did that the first time uh, by, uh, you know, threatening to sue him for the kind of, uh, le- um, his the, log- the logo of his store, which contained, um, I, think it's, I think it was a mongoose, on top of something that has the, had the um, form of a, yeah, like a brick that has the had these little um, knobs on top, notches on knobs on top. That's the word. Which obviously my, can be a Lego prick, but the thing is, Lego hasn't had the uh, the patent for that specific type of prick for years now. They don't own that um, yet. They claim that by doing so, people might think that he's associated with them. And they were like, yo, you can't do that. And they did that not in a, um, you know, some kind of conversation. They just straight up went through the lawyer at him like, yo, f- 
stop it right now. Or Here's we'll a cease you. and desist, essentially. Exactly. Like no. And the funny thing is the um, like the the lawyer that sent him the 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 letter was also based in Frankfurt, and he's like, "Yo, why didn't you just come over? We could have talked about it all over <laughs> a cup of coffee. But why why do you have to be so?" You know, so rough, to, so to speak. Um, that was two years ago. He made a video about it. People were outraged on his behalf, obviously. He had a huge influx of, of sub subscribers and subsequently made the decision of not exclusively selling Lego in his store anymore, but also selling uh, these type of brick, stackable brick toys, I think, That's what you might call it um, from other um, companies. Because, as I said, Lego doesn't own the patent for that type of toy anymore. Any, everybody can produce these, these bricks and produce sets that use these. Obviously, you can't just straight up copy the Lego Star Wars uh, Star Destroyer or something. That is obviously still protected, but the general idea of having these stackable bricks isn't protected anymore. Lego doesn't own that. And so there's a lot of companies out there that do that nowadays. Something that I didn't really, wasn't really aware of, I, I have to say, before this whole YouTube thing blew up, I still thought that if you want to play with these bricks, you need to, you know go to Lego, right? And Lego is the only one and everybody, everything else is, are like cheap knockoffs and like um, bootleg kind of stuff, which isn't true anymore. These are legitimate products that are just produced from other companies that use the same kind of stacking system, right? So, um, so he made that decision two years ago and kept making, uh, selling Lego, Kept selling, uh, then started selling other retail, uh, other uh, companies' um, sets, so to speak, and make videos about uh, about all of those. Mm -hmm. And he kept getting more and more critical of Lego because I think to him the decisions and the sets that they put out kept getting more and more questionable. Mm -hmm. And then in the beginning of this year, well, like the first or second week of January, they. Uh, he got another letter from uh, a lawyer where they uh, told him to, he had to um, delete a lot of his videos because he unintentionally used the word Lego for bricks that weren't from Lego. This is, I, uh, this is obviously not okay. This is a problem. And um, Lego is more or less um, forced to do something against that just because if you don't protect your um, uh, your patents and your intellectual property you lose it that's generally how these things work yeah but again again uh, his problem was like bro I'm right here just talk to me could have found another solution to that whole thing and um, no they went straight through the lawyer again uh, and said Yo, you need to delete all of these videos where you did that And these were mostly videos where he wasn't too kind about Lego sets. What he did was he deleted all of those videos and uploaded them again without the words, but ended up being even more critical about this. It's like uh, he did a, a, a comparison of two kind of racing Su type. Like supercars, like two Ferraris, yeah, exact, I think. Yeah, exactly. 
It's like um, in the first time it was like uh, some kind of description, uh, just, just some kind of comparison. But if uh, when he re-uploaded them, he titled is like um, this and this. Uh, I don't know which company it, it was, but this supercar absolutely annihilates the the Lego one. So it's something along those lines. Um, where he obviously started, okay, you want to fuck with me? I'm going to fuck with you right back. And it led to an outpouring of support um, where he's, I think he's at like, I'm going to say 400k. Seven, no, he's at 700,000 now. Oh, damn. Damn. This is, this is insane. If you look at, um, there's like how many? 100 million people that speak German? Somewhere between like 80 and 100 million, yeah, I think. Somewhere well, between. I'm not saying it's 80. Yeah. I, I'm aware that the minimum would be 80, but I just don't have a more specific yeah, number. Yeah, no, it's, it's around 100 million people. Okay. And it's like it's, <laughs> it's like almost 1% of, of German-speaking people are subscribed to that channel. It's, it's fucking insane to me. And, and the, whole, the, uh, the, the um, bottom line of all of this is that Lego... Is absolutely terrible at PR. I think the problem is that obviously, you know, they do. I don't think they're doing too hot as a company because they keep losing more and more children. And they keep putting out more and more expensive sets that are geared towards adults. Like as I the, as I mentioned, the, the the one of the biggest sets is like the Star Wars Star Destroyers. It's seven hundred euros for a couple of Lego bricks. Which is I don't know of questionable Can, of questionable quality as um, Mr. Punk never gets tired to put out because he's not exactly. just criticizing the price point he's criticizing the increase in the price point and the decrease in quality I think exactly yeah um, but the bottom line is it's not it's not a kid's toy anymore yeah and they know that and they keep they have they keep uh, being getting pushed into that uh, adult market more and more because that is where the money is and that is where they make the money by just putting insane price tags on these these things. And Lego knows that as well. And they also know that the, there are these new companies that make much cheaper uh, sets. And the thing is, the quality isn't worse than, than with the Lego sets. It's very likely that those sets are produced in the literally the same uh the same factory product factories as the Lego ones there there's there's he hinted at that a couple of times where he said how is it possible that this uh piece from that manufacturer has the exact same uh flaw as the one from Lego that is very suspicious. I think I I think I recall him outright saying like just stating that they come from the same facility so um, yeah, so uh, and and I think Lego is really a little bit afraid of that, and so they they keep swinging their arms around and 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 you know hitting wildly around it. And do and it's an absolute marketing disaster in the German market. I I really think think it is because I wasn't aware of of all of those sec uh, all of those alternative manufacturers and and companies. I wasn't. I truly thought that Lego is Lego. You need to go through them if you want a legitimate product, which isn't true anymore. And I think they made so much so much more people aware of that just by being such dicks about it. Yep. As opposed to just, you know, do a, kind of clearing it up 
on the low, so to speak. Just reaching um, out to people and not just immediately, you know, lawyer, lawyering up and threatening people. Yeah, so this is, um, I think the, the thing is about Thomas Punk is that he is, he is a hilarious dude. Like if you look at uh, at the screenshots, you think he's like a a fucking dork, but he's not. He's a really very dry, very, a little bit cynical, very clever, sarcastic. But he's a really clever, knowledgeable, quiet dude. But I, it's just you can I can listen to him making fun of Lego forever. It's he's just a very calming yet. Um, He's calm and uh, he's a, he has a very calm demeanor, but he's very poignant about the, the the things that he cares about, and he's very clear in in you know uh, con- uh, criticizing, and he's very funny about it all as well. That's that's why I think that is why his uh, YouTube thing blew up so much because people enjoy listening to him being a little you know a little smartass a little a lot of the time and just. The whole shtick. But then there was another person, and this is probably, would have maybe been a better recipient for some kind of award, so to speak. I think he goes by Johnny on, on YouTube, and he's mm-hmm. also the owner of a toy store, also in the Lego YouTube game, uh, but much smaller. But his he is uh, not only a retailer, but he's also, uh, he imports um, these Lego, no, he not not Lego sets, but these stackable brick sets from other Chinese yeah. ma- manufacturers, and he's he he gets them to Germany and and sells them through his um, the importer essentially. He's the importer essentially, and what what happened is that they um, that Lego um, through ways that were apparently a little shady got the um, the custom to. Uh, to halt their to halt their delivery, I think what 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 they, what they managed to is through their lawyer uh, through their lawyers and through their activities through their lawyers halt um, the delivery of those brick products for that specific retailer under the argument that he would be selling counterfeit um, and fake products. Exactly. They. Um, I mean, the, the the customs they are obliged to if they get a a, a tip, so to speak, uh, that there's a shipment that yeah. is. Dangerous or anything, they need to to stop it. They they'll uh, take it in and uh, store it till there's uh, you know a, a a trial, right? Yeah, um, a court ruling essentially. A court ruling, exactly. Um, which obviously caught, uh, and he had to pay for the storing. He had obviously had uh, losses just by his products that he paid for not arriving at yeah. the store, and it cost him a bunch of money. And Lego, and on top of that, he it, like it was a risk that he needed to hire a lawyer and go through that whole spiel just to get the products that he ordered. And these again, these are not counterfeit. These aren't bootleg. These aren't like these are produced in the same factory as a lot of the Lego pieces are. Probably they just try to fuck with him, um, and he. Also took that to to um, YouTube, and he got a shout out from Thomas Panke. But what he did was insanely clever to me. He started a um, a donation uh, run for. Um, he said like, okay, we uh, we're gonna do this on. I'm gonna say 
Kickstarter. I'm not exactly. GoFundMe. I think it's GoFundMe probably. Okay. Whatever. One of, one of those sites where you can donate things. And like you guys donate money. It's not for me. From all the money, if we get to like, I think the initial goal was like 30,000. If we get mm -hmm. to 30,000 euros, we're gonna order just a bunch of play sets for kids and distribute them throughout like um, orphanages and you know children's homes and um, hospitals throughout Germany like obvious charitable donation for uh, poor children yeah so this is uh, this is what she said we, we're going to do that donation I'm gonna uh, get a shipment of those and distribute them, them to all those kids that may want to play with them. Um, and I think uh, last time I checked, they were at like half a million dollars. That's amazing. That's yeah, so good. They, because again, all of the, the same the same uh, level of outrage that uh, Thomas Panke had a couple of times with his Lego stuff just transferred to to this one, and they put it to use. They collected half a million euros in. That's insane. Donations to 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 donate play sets for um for poor and and disadvantaged kids, right? And this is this is fucking uh, clever to me because what is Lego gonna do? Are they going to stop a shipment of half a million dollars in toys for disadvantaged kids at the borders? Like, nah, uh, can't you? <laughs> I think you have to destroy this. All of this. This is like a counterfeit. This would like be PR suicide. And I think that's really, really clever to play it like that and just test. I think he's it's just testing them. He's he's just okay, you wanna you wanna stop my little shipment for my store? How about you stop half a million dollars in donations to disadvantaged kids? It's um I really enjoy I mean obviously I enjoy just Disadvantaged kids getting, you know, donations. That's amazing. It's half a million dollars. That's yeah. insane. What I also in, uh, enjoy the the passive aggressive nature of of uh, trying to get Lego to stop uh, to stop it, right? <laughs> to stop this, to stop this corporate corporate fuckery. I was actually about to to jump in and ask, like, what do you think? Whether uh, whether it's okay to kind of utilize a charitable cause. To, to fuck with a company because then that gets kind of like second in the focus but at the same time like you said this passive aggression turning that into a charitable cause is also a really good way of going about it I think I think yeah, um, yeah but in the end you can't deny that there's half a million dollars in donation going to a good cause yeah that's and a that fact is, absolutely absolutely that's a fact and I think that is um I don't think that it, that is any kind of excuse or anything. I think that is a genuine, genuine. There was the genuine concern in the first place. And okay. I really think that they wanted to do good, and I think the fucking with Lego is just a nice little side effect of nice. that idea. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, those two maybe uh, candidates for German of the. Uh, of the month, I think I'm gonna call it. Yeah. Even though we're like two months late to the whole thing, but the uh, the thing with the donation, it's still going on, and I think there's still. I think Lego learned that you have to talk to people, so they're kind of in in negotiation 
negotiations right now. Yeah. Um, haven't kept up with that in the last couple of weeks where they were like, oh yeah, we are only talking about very, very specific sets that use certain parts that might infringe on our whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. They're, they're talk- <laughs> I think they're talking it out right now. Um, that doesn't even really matter. It's, all that matters is there's half a million uh, do- euros in toys going to to disadvantaged kids across, that's awesome across Germany and I think that's um, we talked about you know the toxic nature of um, of fandom and all of that uh, last time and I think this is really where all of that gets turned on his head and is at its best right where this level of internet outrage is used for 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 good right I mean there has been there have been some idiots that you know uh, um went at Lego, that went at the lawyers, that even went at the German customs that who just did their job, right? This is literally, they have to pr- prosecute things like that if they get a, if, if they get a tip. So there's all, always a level of, of um, amount of idiots involved, but uh, turning this level of outrage and this level of shitstorm that, that was, you know, going on against Lego into something that is unarguably that... That good and such a net positive is is amazing, and it is uh, for once the internet you know coming together and doing something worthwhile. So now after re- revisiting an old segment, I I, I think I want to um, premiere a new one. Hit me, and that's something I I turned twenty seven recently, um, and I th- I th- I think I'm still in my mid twenties. Maybe the last year I am I can. Somewhat reasonably claim that I am twenty eight. Yeah. I think twenty eight. You're in your late twenties. It's over. Yeah, but twenty seven. It's Thank you. right at <laughs> right at the edge. So what I'm getting at, we're both near our late twenties, um, and that's the age where you where you really realize, like, oh yeah, I'm getting old right now. I have to grow up. That's a whole another question, but just you're not in touch with the youth anymore, right? And I wanted I want to do a segment on getting washed, where we just wonder, where we just sit together in our old ass, being our old ass selves, and talk about things that we might not understand anymore. So picture Tim and me on some sort of uh, porch in two rocking chairs. Exactly. Um, we're old, have white hair or no hair, um, and we're just we're just we're just frowning. Upon what the exactly. US has now done. Exactly. Um, and the first topic for today that I've come across, across a couple of times recently that I re- don't really understand are NFTs or <laughs> non fungible tokens. It's the latest hype on the internet. Um, and just from my understanding, I'm just I'm trying to explain what I understood so far. Yeah. Maybe I don't I don't know if you know any more about that than I do. Just chime in if you want or when or, or else we can just I mean argue hit about me and I can I can cuz cuz my knowledge is about 3 sentences worth of knowledge about okay, it. Okay, yeah, that's that's makes 7 between us probably. <laughs> um no what I know is that um non-fungible tokens is a technology that is somewhat related to uh, 
you know, um, cryptocurrency and um, the blockchain. That's like the buzzword. Um, where you can basically give digital um, data or digital items a, a, a identify them, right? That's I think that's where non-fungible comes from because fungible means that something is exchangeable in a way. I think that's that's what I read at least. Mm-hmm. Like fun, gold, for example, is fungible. Like. 500 grams of gold is worth another 500 grams of gold. It's like they're interchangeable. Yeah. Non-fungible means that they're not because let's say maybe one 500 grams of gold were owned by, I don't know, Michael Jackson or anything. Maybe they're worth more now. And they're, they're all Michael Jackson signed them on the bottom of that, uh, a bit of gold he signed. Yeah. Now that's a little bit more worth more because it's not interchangeable with the other one at a very base level. And so what what that means is that they started that this technology is is uh, making digital data unique, which it is oftentimes isn't isn't like if you have a picture of. A wallpaper of your favorite band, maybe you know you can send it to your body and body, and he has the exact same one. And maybe you lose yours, you delete your computer, former at sea, and then your body sends you that wallpaper back, and you have it again. You know, it's digital. That's uh, being digital means you're in a in a way. Um, you can do. You can uh, make infinite copies of it of, of of a thing, and they're all worth the same. They yeah. are the same, right? And that is not the case with non fungible tokens. They that's putting a serial number, so to speak, on um on on a digital item, and that is giving uh, that item a history of who owned it. You know, and that and they use that. And that's the ominous day. Because I don't know who they are, just stick with me. They. And so where I came across that is with the NBA, uh, who uh, somebody started a business of. <laughs> this is fucking stupid. Of selling <laughs> gifts, really badly cropped gifts of NBA players highlights, as non fungible tokens. So I mean, uh, you know, um, collecting cards, like baseball cards and stuff like that. Yeah. That's been around for years, and there's a ton of money in that. Uh, I think um, a Mike Trout rookie card went for like, I think it was in close to three million dollars a couple of months ago. It's fucking insane. It's a piece of paper with a picture of Mike Trout on it. I agree. Whatever, but um. What I'm getting at is there is a lot of money in in these sports cards, physical sports cards that you can collect and you know um, uh, swap with your buddies and whatever. Um, that's been around for decades, and that is pro- taking that idea and putting it into a digital age. You know, where you buy a pack of it's similar to like a. In in uh, sports games like uh, uh, FIFA or um, 
to uh, NBA 2K where you also buy these packs and there's players in them. In that case, you can use that player in your team in that game. It's a fucking scam, but that's another uh, topic for another day. But that is that idea. You buy uh, a pack, there's like five gifts of highlights in there. Then you have them in your collection and you can sell them on the marketplace in that app. And people are fucking spending insane amounts of money on that thing. There's there's cards that go for like a couple thousand thousand dollars already. And I don't I do not understand that. So I the don't. way that I that I understood this whole NFT thing is that what you what you touched upon that they're basically created in a similar in a similar way. I heard people just referring to them as a different type of of cryptocurrency basically because they are created in a similar fashion. And the value attached to it is kind of also limited based on the the amount that you can create. I think. And well, um, that's sorry. Just one quick thought. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the point that these are limited. Yes, these are limited runs. Yes, Maybe absolutely. you have a a LeBron dunk or anything. There's like just only fifteen thousands of them. Yeah, and I, you, there's a a um, you know limited supply of that. Yeah, and um, but it it. It's not because you can just hit up YouTube and look at that LeBron dunk for a million times and it's yep. not going to cost you anything. But this specific GIF in that eco ecosystem of that Top Shot, Top Shot it's called, I think, Top Shot app only exists 15,000 times. I think that is the general idea behind it. And it's kind of funny because it just goes to show how arbitrary the value to anything is that that you Absolutely. attach to it. Like like we've like if you ever think about how crazy the concept of money and an economy and um you know the results of it is like I mean essentially it's just establishing another type of currency. Again, in, in this case it's it's an image of LeBron James or like I think I like the um I like the comparison with gold. I mean the the the, the value that you attach to something Something like gold is equally arbitrary. Um, you could you could argue that something, you know, that we would consider mundane uh, in our society has the same value, which is to say, it has no value, or everything has a value. Like it just comes comes down from how you look at it. And the thing about NFTs that's or like cryptocurrency in general that struck me, um, and I have a very very limited understanding of this. So. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, pretend I know any better. But with things like uh, like Bitcoin, I understood that there's a certain limit to how many of those can exist at the same time. Um, so I get that there's 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 a value in in owning these um, and using them as a means of currency. So like, um, I, I I I get that with the NFT idea, um, that takes it. About ten steps further, in my opinion, um, or like from my understanding, because it just becomes this idea of a digital trading token, if you will, whether that's yeah. a Pokemon card or like a baseball card, like you said, exactly. Um, and and I still have not fully understood yet how how this whole thing works. And I think it it comes down to yes, these these tokens only work in that specifically created environment, such as an app or something. Because I think I recall Elon Musk posting about some some N NFT that he had or that he was intending to make on Twitter, and he had a screenshot of it. And I was just thinking to myself, well, if I screenshot this now, I don't need your NFT. Exactly, and that's the point. And and it, it it's 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 kind of 
Yeah, it just has me it has me scratching my head a little bit because part of me is like, well, I get that the the value that I attach to, you know, maybe my favorite Pokemon card that I still have lying around my house from when I was a kid is equally arbitrary. But the fact remains that it's a physical object I can touch. And exactly. that is and that is the component that is entirely removed here. So I'm not exactly sure I would be able to make that leap from my perspective um, in terms of attaching the same value to a collectible that I that 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 purely exists in a digital way. Um, however, I get the idea that a digital like a dig- digital artifact has a monetary value because at the end of the day, for example, the connection that I have with the money that I own is also purely through the app that my bank allows me. I don't have a vault I can physically open where there's, you know, a little bit of money laying in there. It's yeah. it's all just numbers on a screen. So that's equally arbitrary in a way. Yeah, I like the the comparison with with money. It's I it's it, the insane thing in the end, right? It's Absolutely. no different. Um uh, I in in that sense that money only has value because we trust that it has value. It it only you giving me twenty dollars for uh, for an item that I give you only works because I trust that that piece of paper that you are giving me has a value. A big t- yeah, has it has equal value, right? And that is the same thing. If if I trust that that uh, LeBron James dunk has a value of of two hundred euros, then it might as well have right. That's how this how monetary value works in that sense but it's as you said it's just very hard to wrap your head around what what constitutes that 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 trust so to speak right i think we should i think we should make this an exercise i think as a homework for both of us um for our next episode we should figure out a way off script off podcast and then come back to it to find the most arbitrary cheap nft that we could possibly buy and i mean the lowest of the low like the stuff that nobody wants and just for us to understand how it works we should try and set it up um, because I understand um, that you can only buy NFTs with cryptocurrency in the first place, so you need you need to figure out. I think NFTs are usually bought with Ethereum, from what I gather. Um, so you need you need to you need to get a crypto wallet and then um, essentially transfer money in, into cryptocurrency and then use the cryptocurrency to buy an NFT. And I'd I'd been I've I've been thinking about the idea of whether to try. That on a very 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 small scale, um, just to see if I can figure it out. I would love if we tried that and we ended up with a really 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 stupid NFT and kind of turned that as into like the podcast token. I think that'd be sick. <clears throat> hit me, hit me. It's a no. I'm gonna do it the other way. It's an album by a band. I want to guess. I want you to guess what band this is, just it, by. You know, the, the type of crowd that gets involved with stuff like that, right? It's probably a gent band. No. No? Okay, then no. it's not a gent band. Okay. Um I have I have I would have thought something like techie, like um progressive techie or something. Let me think. Um maybe something K pop or something. No, not in that. I mean, there might be, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, hit me. Then I'm clueless. I was, uh, I led you astray. It's the Kings of Leon. Their Damn. latest album exists as a 
NFT. So technically, <laughs> technically, somebody could buy this NFT and be like, I'm the only one who owns this record. If it's Sorry, a what? what if it's like if it's a one-off, like let's let's say the this NFT exists once, right? One time. I think it, 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 I think it, it exists a couple of times, but limited. I, that's that's I, the idea, right? So like essentially, yeah. at the end of the day, if they have like 15 NFTs, um, yeah. that are all like unique, essentially, but still kind of the same, I guess. Um, there's people in the world who could say we're the only handful of people who own that record as an NFT. Yes. I suppose. I wonder if you can listen to an NFT. That's the thing that the album exists on Spotify just the same. I th but this is maybe where I get it a little more because especially in the light of like streaming music, oh, yeah. you never own you never own it, right? Um in that uh, sense, uh, having a sense of ownership of it, if you don't want to buy a vinyl or something, you might as well just uh, drop a, a bit of money on a digital token that you that tells you that you own it, because you certainly don't own your stream on Spotify. A hundred percent. And I've seen I've seen um, several musicians. Um, I think I've seen Pliny um, in the past few weeks. Um, Tweeting and like talking about how cryptocurrency can change a lot of how money, uh, how music is monetized, especially for individual artists or independent artists, and how blockchain technology and cryptocurrency can be used for for fairer compensation for musicians in that context. And I think he was one of the first ones I've seen in my uh, circle of social media, I suppose, or like people that I follow to jump up on that. And he was like, he was on that before I even knew what a fucking NFT was. Mm. Um, but I think one other, uh, another factor, especially with the the cards, the the, uh, the the basketball cards and thing, it's just um, a fear of missing out and people thinking that they can um, people thinking that they can make a quick buck, um, you know, getting into it early. Yep. Uh, I think that is a large part of it that people. They hype. they saw they, they they see like uh, baseball cards going for millions of dollars and they're like oh I'm getting into that new technology early and um, I might make a bit of money off of that which is for like ninety nine percent of the people a sucker's bet because by the time you heard about it and you get into it you're not an early adapt uh, adapter anymore you're like yep. already you you are already making other people money that were way earlier than you you are behind um, the curve you are automatically yeah. behind the curve if you're not part of the like development or something and but people you know um, people fall for that type of hype uh, every single time whenever there's a quick buck to be made people I mean there's a lot of rich go. people who want to get in on the action so Oh, I don't think that it's a lot of. I don't. I don't think that. I think that is even more with like um, non-rich people. It's like I'm gonna invest like a uh, hundred or five hundred or maybe a thousand dollars in that, and then if you uh, invested a thousand dollars in um, in Bitcoin like ten years ago, fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. you're a fucking billionaire by now. Yeah, that's the idea because the the growth with these things can be so exponential. Um. But by the time the general public knows about it, that stage is probably over, right? I'd agree. I'd agree. So um, this is probably going to sound hilarious in ten years when everything is a uh, is either cryptocurrency or NFT. Um, but until then, 
we're gonna get rich with our little uh, NFT that we buy to, for the next episode. I feel like I I'm feel gonna like look we into try that uh, Kings of Leon uh, record. Go for it. Go for it. Just give me a guess. What do you think it, it costs? I'm, I, I'll see if I if I can uh, find it. Mm. Okay. So what threw me off is the fact that it's a it's a major production. So it's a major it's a major big band um, with a with a big label deal and somebody who's like in the spotlight. So I would expect it to be expensive, like kind of a premium, premium, premium product. Um, I've seen cheap NFTs for um, like just made by people um, go, you know, across the table for like I don't know twenty five US dollars or something or seventeen or something. I would guess it's a lot higher than that. I would guess it's at least three figures, four figures, maybe even five. I have no idea what types of dudes the Kings of Leon are, if I'm honest. So um, they're selling starting on May f- uh, March fifth. They released six, eighteen golden tickets, and six of them were auctioned. But I, I'm not. I don't really understand what's happening here. Um, they sold. They sold uh, exclusive album editions, digital artworks, lifetime concert passes. And they sold more than just the album during that um, auction. But all in all, they made $1.5 million from that auction. Jesus Christ. The, the most expensive NFT in the collection was Golden Ticket, Bandit Number 2. Wave, which included audio excerpts of "When You See Yourself," I think that is um, the name of the album, and the lead single "Bandit." Um, is that the lifetime um, concert thingy? I don't know. It sold for eighty-nine Ethereum. That's a lot is, of money. Which is two hundred sixteen thousand dollars. Okay, um, and somebody um, has listed the album. <laughs> somebody has listed the album, like he's probably uh, oct- uh, uh, bought it during the auction, and now he listed it for sale at four hundred Ethereum, which is a million, a million bucks, something, yeah, a million and something, like one point five, maybe. Sure, good luck with that. I am in no position to say whether or not he'll get there. Um, yeah, so this is, um, I, I, as I said, I think this is probably going to stick with us. And this is, I mean, it maybe not in that um, in in that sense, but the uh, you know the technology and the idea of making um, digital content non-fungible i think it's is definitely here to stay yeah i'm predicting tons of tax fraud though <laughs> <laughs> do you want to say that cryptocurrency is at times used for not so legal endeavors hell no all right that's would be news to me huh. um so yeah um 
we'll keep up we'll keep up with that or maybe buy a couple of cheap <laughs> nfts if there is such a thing as a cheap nft maybe just the the starting price for anything is like in the the thousands that's it's not it's not probably it's not. not i've seen trading cards knockoff trading cards made it's um, like for youtubers idea. We make, our, we, we make our own NFTs. Big, that's, big, that's big, the way. That's <laughs> big brain exactly. <laughs> it's like that's just like a regular regular um, enlightenment is um, buying cheap NFTs. The galaxy brain is making an NFT for your podcast that nobody listens to. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, I actually know what we're good, what we should make as an NFT, but I'm not gonna go on record and say that out loud. <laughs> All right. Um. I think this should conclude this our is, ramble. This is probably the, the last episode because by by this time next week we are going to be fucking rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, so yeah, this probably does it for today. Um, that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to everyone next week, next time. On the next installment. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.